Well, today we're kicking off a new series. We've uh, just come out of our prayer series. We were in 21 days of prayer through the month of August, and uh, in that season, we like to teach about prayer and talk about prayer. So if prayer is something that's, that you've always tried to figure out and never fully understood, you don't know how to really hear from God in prayer, and you're new to our church, I'd encourage you to go on the app and check that out, give it a listen. Today, we're starting a series that we're going to carry on through the beginning of fall called The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. I want to spend the next nine weeks uh, talking through the Beatitudes. Uh, some people say there's eight Beatitudes. We've made it nine because we love learning about Beatitudes. If you don't know what Beatitudes are, that's all right. I'm going to make it crystal clear for you, uh, and we're going to talk through this together. There was a, a moment in Jesus's ministry that was really kind of a pinnacle moment for him when he was becoming known. He was starting to gain uh, some notoriety in the region. People would want to come and listen to him, and there was this moment where he preached this message called the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount was what really his most famous message. It was his, his landmark message that started out his ministry on the right foot, kind of let people know where he stood, what kind of authority he had, and, and what, he, what he was coming to show the world. And we look back on that sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and we can learn what made Jesus Jesus. The way that God thinks, the way that he thinks about us, the way that he sees the world, it's one of the best things. If you've never really studied scripture, one of the best places you can start is to go in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew and open it up to chapter 5 and just start reading through it. And he opens that message with these statements about who is going to be blessed and who's going to be who he's looking for the kind of person that he most identifies with and we call that the beatitudes i don't really know what beatitude means it's an old word but it sounds great and and, uh, and maybe it's the attitude you want to be that was the most baptist moment of the morning <laughs> just came to me it's natural <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and so we're going to spend some time learning about this because what we want desperately as a people is to be who Jesus wants us to be, it is to be the kind of people that he looks for, the kind of people he calls blessed, that receive the kingdom of God based on his words and not what we want or what we believe. Uh, and so that is why we're putting a big priority on it. Jesus gave us this one call over and over and over again throughout scripture, and that was to follow him or to, to emulate him, to learn how to live like him. And the more that we do that, the more we unlock one of the greatest gifts of the Christian life. A lot of times, all the emphasis of becoming a Christian is placed on the afterlife, uh, on what happens as a reward of following Jesus, that we die and we get to go to heaven. When I die, I get to go to heaven. This is a great, this is a great place to put emphasis. It's a, it's a great thing that if you follow Jesus when you die, you get to spend eternity in paradise. Who doesn't like that? That sounds good. In fact, almost every civilization throughout history has had questions about the afterlife, has wondered what is going to happen after I die. I feel like I'm more than just a body. I'm also a spirit. What happens to the spiritual side? Where do I go? And so as a follower of Jesus, having an answer to that is incredible. It's great. We don't fully understand it. We never will. We can never really grasp what it means that as we die, we go into being his presence. We don't really, maybe if you've lived a life where you've been close to death, it means more to you. You understand a, a little bit 
more of what it means to be able to spend eternity in heaven and how good that is. But for many of us, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hard thing to get a hold of, but it's a good reward. But there is another reward to following Jesus, an immediate reward, a reward that cannot be overstated, and it's a full life. It's the life that Jesus wants you to live right now here in this place, a satisfied life, a life without longing. God wants you to live this life not feeling broken apart and empty like many people do, but he wants you to go through this life feeling whole. He knows what parts are missing from you, and he wants to make you feel whole again. It was a big part of his mission statement. It was a big part of what he came here to give us, was a better way to live. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about your most blessed life where you got two fancy cars and a pool in the back and, and all kind, you got a boat and a, and a Yeti 110 iced down with some silver bullets. So I'm not talking about that kind of a blessed life today. I think there's more for you than that real blessing, blessing that comes from deep down in your soul. I think when Jesus says, blessed be in every one of these beatitudes or blessed are the, he is not talking about a, a blessing like you and I might consider in the terms of this world. He's talking about a blessing like what everyone is actually looking for in this world, what people are actually giving their lives and everything that they are to try and find a wholeness in your heart, real peace and blessing deep down inside of you. Jesus lived his life and his ministry as a model of how we can experience that. And one day he just flat out told us what to do and what that looks like through the Beatitudes, through these statements. And so let's read them together in Matthew chapter five, uh, beginning in verse one. It says, seeing the crowds, these people had come to hear from Jesus. It says, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we know that Jesus' preaching style was the stool guy. You know, you ever seen the stool? Maybe I should get a stool. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. I love a, a show about Jesus called The Chosen. The Chosen's a great show. You can go to thechosen.com and watch. It's really good. And in the scene in that show where Jesus is writing the Beatitudes, he keeps referring to it as a map of where people can find him, a map of where you can look if you wanna find Jesus. And so today, we're gonna to start at the beginning of a map, and over the next few weeks, we're gonna work our way through it and discover what it would look like for us to be the blessed person that Jesus describes in this passage. 
And so today we're starting at the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is what we're talking about today. Poor in spirit. What does that even mean? I've heard it a thousand times in my life growing up in and around church. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it was actually last year uh, I was slowing down my study of Matthew uh, in the Beatitudes in preparation for preaching this sermon this year. And I asked this question, what does it, wait, what does it mean to be poor in spirit. It was buried in my mind somewhere from a, a seminary class years ago where somebody had told me, and I, I started thinking through just what is the obvious? Does it mean somebody that's depressed or sad all the time? What is somebody, what is it, is it a humility thing? Somebody that's really humble? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? So I went over to my favorite paraphrase of the Bible. It's called The Message. The message is a paraphrase written by Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson was a pastor who lived for 40 years in the Baltimore area, pastoring a medium-sized church. He was an incredible leader, an incredible man of God. And he wrote the message, not meaning for it to be a translation like one that we only study, but really more for it to be like a commentary, something that you study in order to understand better what the words of God mean. I recommend if you're studying the word of God on your own and you're reading through a Bible, you've got a, a translation like the, uh, the, the NIV or, or something like that, then you can go to the message and read the same passage alongside it. It can give you some greater insight into what the Bible is saying. Here's how the message translates this verse. It says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope because with less of you is more of God in his rule. So now this is starting to make sense. Poor in spirit. If you break down the Greek language, you'll find that this word is translated directly destitute. And here it means internally destitute. Or in other words, at the end of your rope. Less of you means more of God. Poor in spirit means someone who knows how helpless they are without God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Because understanding how desperately you need God is a crucial part of actually surrendering your life to Jesus. Really surrendering. And that's what he calls us to, make no mistake about it. He doesn't call you to give him a little part of your life or a piece of your life. He doesn't ask you to add him to your life or to sprinkle him in. He asks you to surrender all of yourself to him. And when you do that, you get to live a full life. You get to know what it means to be complete and to be whole. But it's very, very difficult to surrender your life completely, to be ready to die for it, surrendering. Understanding how desperately we need him can be hard for us because honestly, we have it pretty good sometimes. It's okay to admit it. We got it pretty good sometimes. I got to spend some time on a boat this summer, you guys, on a boat. Wasn't mine, but it was a boat. It floats on the water. You ever been on a boat? We've got it pretty good sometimes, okay? Listen, this morning I took a hot shower. It was hot outside. I could have had a cold shower, regulated my body's temperature. doesn't matter. I took a hot shower. Y'all, we've got it pretty good sometimes. We, 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 we forget how good we've got it. I have three meals every single day. I can't even remember the last time I was hungry. It's not too shabby. We get it pretty good. And sometimes when we've got it pretty good, it can make it hard for us, it can make it easy for us to lose sight 
of our need for Jesus, how much we need him, how desperate we are for him. Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the hardest person to evangelize is somebody who thinks they're already happy, that they've already got everything that they need. We've got a tendency as people to settle for the kind of happiness we can get from this world when we can get it. But there's a problem with that. The kind of happiness that we have access to here in this life, the kind of thing that, that comes from money, that comes from a boat, that comes from hot water and three meals a day, is that it's never permanent. It's objective, situational. It's temporary happiness. It always expires and it always runs out. Markets crash and money gets spent. Boats break down, weather doesn't hold. People lie and cheat and steal and leave. Even a healthy marriage isn't happy all the time. When Jesus died for us, he gave us access to a different kind of happiness. One that's permanent and immovable. One that's further away from a dopamine hit and closer to actual peace and satisfaction. Jesus says this to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation. He, he writes these letters to different churches after he's already ascended into heaven to kind of give them a, a reality check. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Maybe you've heard this in the context of church. Don't be a lukewarm Christian, go all in or nothing. He would rather that than you sit in the middle somewhere. But let me tell you why it says this church became lukewarm. It says, you say I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And this is us sometimes. We've got faith. We go to church. Jesus is a part of our lives. We fold him into our lives like a fixing on a plate. Part of it included. Lukewarm. But he doesn't call us to be lukewarm. He doesn't ask for a little bit. He doesn't want to be made a part of our lives. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Anyone who's not ready to forsake the rest of the world is not ready to be one of his followers. Jesus wants everything. Full surrender. And that comes from a heart that knows what it means to be poor in spirit. And that's why blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the whole kit and caboodle. It's everything. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's a couple reminders today. Reminders of who we are without him. What he's done for us to help remember why we are desperate for him, destitute for him, why we're hopeless without him. My goal here isn't to, to bum you out today. Have you ever been to a church that spent all day telling you how wretched you are and then you walk out just feeling absolutely beat up? That is not our goal. My goal is to help you remember how much you need Jesus so that you can depend on him more and live a life that is filled with real happiness and comfort and joy. I want you to live a blessed life. I want blessing for you. I don't want you to just look forward to heaven. I want you to love where you are right now here in this life. I want you to feel whole, to be a part of something bigger than yourself, and to pursue the purpose that God has laid on your life right here now in this life. And so that is why 
we're going to talk today about what it means to be poor in spirit so that the more destitute we become internally, the greater we are at pursuing him with everything that we are. So let's walk through it. If I am poor in spirit, I understand that without Jesus, I pay for my own sins. Without Jesus, I pay for my own sins. Have you ever been to the grocery store and you go to swipe that debit card and you thought for sure that the amount of groceries that you were gonna get was gonna be like $110 and they just keep throwing things across that little scanner and you're like, oh no, what's happening right now? It's like $200, 205, 252. And you're like, that was a $50 avocado? The heck just happened? And then you go and you, you tap or you, you put the chip in or you swipe and then you're just waiting. You're like, you're staring at the person, you know, you're looking at them and, and you're hoping, you know, and it says approved and inside you're doing a little dance. You're like, oh yeah, feeling good, looking good, crushing it. I've been there before where it has swiped and they said, oh, I'm sorry. It didn't work. Let's try it again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, let's try it again. Let's <laughs> just swipe her again. That'll... That'll, <laughs> that'll change everything. <laughs> that'll make a difference. And what happens in that scenario? You either, you either have a credit card and you come it out and you swipe it out and you put it on the credit card or you put stuff back. And nobody wants to take the walk of shame back into the aisle to decide what in the world where you pull out that credit card, you swipe it, and now there's a debt on that credit card. And what happens to the debt on that credit card? doesn't just go away. I lived my early 20s in belief, full belief, that that was a magic gift from God. I just believed it. I just had faith, you guys. I had a strong faith that if I swiped that credit card, that God would take care of the debt, just like he's taking care of the debt for me. And that is not what happens. What happens is that debt continues to accumulate. You may pay a minimum payment, put a little bit down on that thing, and, and, and it keeps the creditors at bay. Nobody's knocking down your door. But if you keep going in that direction, that minimum payment gets higher and higher and higher. And then one day you swipe that card and they said, you want to try it again. And now this debt has to be paid. And oftentimes... We've got to figure out what to do next. What understanding the grace of Jesus means is understanding that without him, I am responsible for my own debt of sin. There's a pattern in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful pattern. A pattern of consistently pursued relationship. The Father creates life and then he calls us to live with him. He calls the life that he created into relationship. It's beautiful. And then humanity rebels against God. Why? Because he's given them the choice to do life with him, to be in relationship with him, to love him. It's one of the greatest kindnesses God ever gave us. He wanted us to love of our own free will because real love only comes out of our own free will. Forced love is abuse. Our God is not an abusive God. So he gave us the opportunity to choose and we chose to rebel. And so humanity rebels against God. God brings justice. After he brings justice, he offers redemption and relationship. And there's relationship again and it's wonderful. And then there is rebellion again. And then there is justice again. And then there is redemption again. And this is the pattern of the Old Testament over and over and over again until Jesus comes and offers a redemption that is final. 
This is the pattern, and Jesus had to come because justice is necessary. It's expected. We want justice. When we hear about a terrible crime in the news, we cry out for justice. When a person in power abuses their power, we demand justice. We're often disappointed if justice isn't served in the way that we want it to be served. When somebody that we know is hurt, we demand justice. Justice is necessary and it's expected and it's something that we want. But our opinions of who should and should not receive justice, wave around with the wind. Very different. It could be the same scenario, but the person has a different background and we see justice differently. When we hear uh, about a terrible crime, we're immediately weighing how bad it was and what justice is right or worthy. It's subjective. No matter who we are, Justice is always based on our own biases and our interpretation of right and wrong. But there is a version of right and wrong that is absolute. And it's not objective. And it's set in stone by the maker of everything. He designed us. He designed this world. He, he is the only one who has the authority to determine what is and is not okay when justice is deserved and what that justice entails. He is the only one who gets to make that decision because he is the author of everything. And if we don't like it, even if we don't like it, deep down in our beings, we do understand it. And this is obvious. By the thousands of shared morals that have been found in every culture in the world, despite the separation of distance and time between us. We're only happy, truly happy, when we are living the way that God made us to live. It's written into your very being. But because we live in a fallen world and because we have choice, the ability to choose to love God or disobey Him, it is really, really hard for us to constantly and consistently make the right choices all the time. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody without exception. Romans 6.23 says that the, the justice of that, the wages of sin, the thing that sin earns is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our brokenness makes it impossible to live the way that we should live all the time. So we are subject to the justice of God, which exists because God is by his very nature just. In fact, God declares his nature and his character to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. This is really an incredible thing because this is the second person God's declared his character to after Adam. Adam got to walk with God, know God before the fall of man. And then there's a long period of time that happens and God uses people to start to build relationship throughout the book of Genesis. But when he gets to Moses, things really start to gain traction. And he decides to reveal his name and his, his nature, his character to Moses. It's an incredible story. It's in Exodus chapter 34 and this is the way God would describe himself. It's like the difference between how I would describe you and how you would describe yourself. You would hope that you would know you better than I would know you. And so God describes himself to Moses 
And he starts like this. He starts by declaring his name twice in a row in order to give it a certain kind of power in the original language. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, declares his name. And then he says, a God merciful and gracious. I just don't know. I think I would have expected God to start with the omnis when he tells us about himself. You know, he's omni. Here I am. I'm omnipowerful, omnipresence omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. I'm everywhere. I know everything. I can do anything. But God starts with merciful and gracious. First parts of his character. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It took a turn there, didn't it? We were really on board when we were talking about maintaining love to thousands and then all of a sudden children are involved. Let me explain this and what it would have meant to the Hebrews hearing it in their original language because it reads a little bit differently. They put a big importance on the way and the order of words and the way you hear it. Here it says that God says he maintains love for thousands and he forgives without limitation. But he says that he does bring justice. Why? Because he is a just God. It's a part of his very character. It's a part of his nature. He has to bring justice. But his justice has a stopping point, the third and fourth generation. Here's what that would have revealed to the Hebrews. There is a moment coming where God's justice would be completely satisfied But his love would never, ever stop. And at that moment, that moment they were describing there, that they talked about for centuries, it came into the world two millennia ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And so one thing that we remember is that because of Jesus, I have the free gift of salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. Ephesians chapter two says, as for you, you were dead in your transgression and your sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by our nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, love with no limitations and no ending, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Jesus changed everything. He satisfies the justice of God once and for all. That means you don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to go out there and go on a quest to make sure that you've atoned for everything you've ever done wrong. You don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is receive the redemption you've been given. And you can't outsin it. You can't disqualify yourself from it. You can't lose his redemption. It is given to you freely by the grace of God. Without Jesus, we've got no hope of living the life that we were made to live. It is made possible by his incredible grace. We need him. And when we really understand that that we need him, that he gives us the justice, he takes the justice on our behalf. He clears our debt. We don't have to pay it. He takes care of it for us. When we really understand that, then we are poor in spirit and ours is the kingdom of heaven. We have to understand how desperate our situation 
is without him in order to understand how desperately we need him. Without Jesus, we pay for our sins, but because of Jesus, we have the free gift of salvation. The, the next thing is that without Jesus, I can barely survive through my pain and my struggles. This life is hard. Every single one of us has to go through so much heartbreak and brokenness. We struggle with sin, broken mindsets and worldviews. How we see ourselves is all twisted up and broken. We get wrapped up in the aftermath of our trauma. Things happen to us or around us that are either in our control or out of our control, but they hurt us in ways that can't be ignored. And without Jesus, we could never really heal from all of it. Our struggles are just our struggles and our pain is just our pain. We live in a broken world, there's no doubt about it, and you won't be fully healed until the world is healed around you at the end of things. But you also don't have to just live with it and live with your struggles and your pain and your brokenness and your addictions. There is more for you. And if you really understand this about yourself, how broken this life and this world has made you, then you understand what it means to be poor in spirit. Because maybe you've been at that spot where you are absolutely at the end of your rope. Life has taken so much from you that you just can't imagine there is anything left for it to take. And without Jesus, that's a pretty hopeless place. A lot of people enter into relationship with him in seasons like that because they didn't know where else to go. And when you have nowhere else to turn, 100% of the time, you can turn to him. And he will bring hope and healing and transformation and peace and comfort. Because of Jesus, I have hope, transformation, and I have healing. First Peter chapter 2, 24 and 25 says, he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is Peter quoting the book of Isaiah, which is the same book that Jesus quotes when he says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted and release from captive the prisoners. It is a central piece to who he is, that he came to bring healing for us. And maybe you haven't received that and you're still living in a world of brokenness and I want you to know there is more for you. That it's never easy, it's never quick, rarely instantaneous, but that there is healing and peace and so much blessing available for you in this life. He can give you hope you didn't once have. He can heal you. He can transform you from someone that you hate into someone that you love. He can help you understand that you have always been loved and unlock inside of you a deep acceptance that you've always longed for. Sometimes you go through things that never leave you, not in this life. Loss, maybe you lost your marriage or someone close to you left this world or maybe you've been through the kind of trauma that just can't be forgotten. And he sees you too. And for you, he does have healing. 
and he offers hope, hope that nobody else gets access to. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, we don't grieve like the rest of mankind and those who have no hope. We grieve differently as followers of Jesus. And that's because we are a people of hope. There is more for you in this life. Because of Jesus, we can experience real transformation. Galatians, Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit. He said the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Whoever you started out with, that's the kind of person you can transform into. Just because this life that you have lived has cultivated bitterness and anger and regret and anxiety and all these other things inside of you doesn't mean that you have to stay that way. Nobody is perfect. And following Jesus doesn't mean all your troubles are going to melt away. But more than anything else, you don't have to go through of it, any of it, by yourself anymore. And if you ever have had to go through it alone and now you're able to go through all this with the hope of Jesus then hopefully you now know what it means to be poor in spirit. You know how badly you need him. Don't forget it. There's a story in Luke chapter 17 where Jesus heals 10 men who had leprosy. To have leprosy in that day was not only a death sentence, it was a die alone sentence. You got sent outside of your community, away from your family to go live in a camp with other people suffering from the same disease. You weren't allowed to worship. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't go and even beg God for healing in the presence of his spirit because you were considered unclean. They would send you away. It was a contagious disease and this was the best way they knew to contain it. And Jesus walked into this place filled with people suffering with this contagious disease and he touched them and he healed them, made them whole again, gave them not only back their health but their entire lives. And so he told them, go to the temple and show them that you're clean so that you can worship there again. And then they did that. Ten of them went and only one of them returned clean to be able to hug and thank Jesus. One out of ten. And Jesus said, where is everybody else? And they didn't come back. And one of the things that we can learn from that story is that when we have been made whole again, when we were broken apart and in pieces, when we've been given back not only our health, but our lives because of the grace of Jesus, don't be the kind of person that runs away and forgets all about it. You have to constantly take yourself back to the desperation you were in before your faith so that you can remember the incredible thing that he's done for you so that you can understand how to live your life in such a way that you are dependent on him and you know it. Without Jesus, I'm trying to find or create my own life. And this is a big one. Have you ever heard the tale of two mountains? We live in the mountains. We love mountains. And maybe you go out hiking a lot and you'll understand this story. It's an old folk tale. Uh, when we are young, there is a mountain that we feel we have to climb. It's the tallest mountain we can see. And we believe this is the tallest mountain that there is. To us, it's the tallest mountain in the world. And the mountain is success and family and the American dream and influence and power and whatever you fixate on and decide is the very thing that's going to make you happy. A person, a relationship, whatever it is. And so we give everything that we have to climbing that mountain. We sacrifice for it. We give our lives to it. We put our lives at risk in order to accomplish it because we know that if we reach the peak of this mountain, if we get there, then we will finally feel satisfied with what we've done. It's 
Then we finally get to the top. Has this ever happened to you hiking? Oh man, you're looking and you're like, I have been going uphill for a million years and it will only end when I reach that spot right there. And you can see it. It's just so glorious, 360 degree view. It's gonna be beautiful. And you finally get there and you get to the top and what's in front of you? Another daggone mountain, bigger than the one you just climbed right there, a second peak. And in life, we climb that mountain and we get to the top and we realize there's another mountain taller than the first. And that mountain is the mountain of fulfillment. That mountain is the mountain of loving people well, serving others, doing things outside of yourself, the fulfillment that comes only from knowing God, finding freedom, discovering your purpose, and making a difference in this life. So many people have given their lives to climbing that mountain, and I don't know. I'm looking at the lives of the most wealthy people in the world right now. They don't seem happier than my life. They don't seem as satisfied as I am. I love to watch celebrity documentaries because there's a common thread in every single one of them where they will admit that they are still searching for the thing that will give them the peace they've been looking for. It's that second mountain. And that second mountain of fulfillment is the one that comes from this relationship with Jesus. And the truth is, a lot of us won't come to Jesus as we are on our way up the first mountain. It gives us a goal to push towards. It keeps us focused or distracted on the days where we feel empty. We know that if we just keep pushing up this mountain of success, we'll be happy when we get to the top. We feel like we've got it. We got it on our own, we'll just keep going. But at some point on the journey, we realize that this mountain is never gonna be enough for us. Maybe we'll never reach the top. Maybe the top doesn't exist. Maybe we reached the top and we realized how meaningless it was. An ancient king got to that place in Ecclesiastes chapter two. He's at the end of his life, he's wealthy, he's got everything you could ever want. And he says, anything, I had anything my eyes desired. And I, anything that my eyes desired, I did not deny myself. I refused my heart no pleasure, for my heart took delight in all the work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I considered all the works that my hands had accomplished and what I had toiled to achieve, I found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. When we realize that, and we find real satisfaction in the only place where it exists, in a relationship with Jesus, then we understand what it means to be poor in spirit. Because of Jesus, I have the ability to know who I am and what my life is all about. I can really be fulfilled. I can actually be happy. I know what happiness looks like, what it means and what it is. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who know how unforgivable they've been for they're the ones who will understand how much they've been forgiven. Blessed are the ones who are so broken that they thought they could never be put back together again. For their healing declares the power of Jesus. Blessed are the ones who were hopeless, who everybody else gave up on, who then found hope. For they know the value of hope. And blessed are the ones who tried to do everything on their own and realized that they couldn't. 
for they understand the meaning of dependence. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you're in here today and you haven't had a relationship with Jesus and you've just spent your life climbing that first mountain, trying to put the pieces together, trying to be worthy, worthy of love, worthy of people, worthy of all that you're being given. Maybe you've gone from being happy and and sailing at the top of the world down into a deep valley and then back to being happy again. And you know what that roller coaster looks like and you're just kind of tired of it. Maybe you're at a place where you're ready to be poor in spirit and receive the blessing that is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you, you know what that's like. Now listen, if you follow Jesus, there are still ups and downs. You are still going to go through loss and you are still going to go through tragedy and there's going to be moments where you are broken. It all happens. But there is a monumental difference and that is the hope of Jesus Christ. It is the way you've been forgiven. It is the resources to be put back together again. And it is the church, his people, to stand beside you every step of the way. And so if you're here and you're ready to enter into that relationship and begin that journey, maybe you are ready to receive the kingdom of God. It is yours today and it's already been given to you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you want to start that journey, just say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for what you've given and offered me. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. Forgive me for my mistakes. I don't want to do it on my own anymore because I know exactly how desperately I need you. And so from this day forward, all that I am, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen.